right, so we're back at The Cracks in Postmodernity. Today we have a Natasha Zhukovsky. She's the author of The Portrait of a Mirror, a novel, and she's also the host of a Substack newsletter called Quite Useless. So Natasha, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Stephen. So I should say we met at the Novitate conference pretty much a month ago in DC, hosted by Luke Burgess, all about Rene Girard, which um, is very relevant to your novel. So um, let's let's talk a little bit about the conference. Um, you were you're invited to speak at a panel about novels. Um, tell people a little bit more about the premise and what was the experience like for you? Yeah, so the premise of our panel specifically at the Novitate conference was Deceit, Desire, and the Contemporary Novelist, playing, of course, on Rene Girard's first book of literary criticism, Deceit, Desire, and the Novel. Uh, the premise being that the insights of Girard's book, uh, of which there are many, but the, you know, the most famous, the central one, is that of mimetic desire, and that desires are, our desires are, are imitative of, of others' desires. Um, that that understanding and um, knowledge that comes with Girard's theory, is it helpful to novelists trying to make art or is it detrimental? And there are different, uh, different takes on that, right? So um, the my co-panelists were Trevor Kribben Merrill and Brandon Taylor. And I, we all had slightly different takes on how helpful or detrimental Girard's, um, Girard's theories are to, to the creative act of writing a novel yourself, as opposed to astutely dissecting them the way Girard does, because obviously it helps with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you you wrote this really fascinating essay, I guess, in preparation for the conference. And one of the, the Girard quotes that you pulled, um, he said, the great novelists reveal the imitative nature of desire. Right. And you kind of weave this in with you know, one of our favorites, Oscar Wilde, yeah. um, about the whole thing of, you know, art imitating life and vice versa. So can you can you talk a little bit about this particular quote about how novelists reveal the imitative nature of desire, this mimetic dimension, um, and how you connected Wilde to all of that? Yeah, sure. So first I should clarify, I actually, I revised that paper based on two, a two-part Substack post that I did after meeting Luke Burgess, who hosted the Novitate conference and, uh, and, and becoming familiar with his book, Wanting, and then, you know, Deceit, Desire, and the novel itself. I formalized and put them together for the conference, but these were more my contemporaneous thoughts after Im immediately after reading um, Deceit, Desire, and the novel. Uh, to that quote specifically, that, uh, that great art reveals the imitative nature of desire, I, I would say that that is the thesis of Girard's first book, that the, the insight that desire is not spontaneous, but rather the product or byproduct almost of someone else's desire and um, the impulse to copy what someone else wants in what is a desire, ultimately a desire not to have, but to be, mm -hmm. um, to be the person whose desires you then imitate, um, that, that, that revealing 
that insight, not in so many words, but in the actions of characters and their psychology and the way that they behave is is kind of the litmus test for Gerard to to you know to a novel's greatness and I uh, I think to a large extent I I'm inclined to agree I mean the the authors that Gerard pulls specifically are Stendhal and Proust and uh, Flaubert and Dostoevsky um but you know, and I, I say this in the paper, you could draw the exact same conclusions looking at Tolstoy and George Eliot and Edith Wharton and Henry James. So, you know, cross cross um, cultures, at, at least in the Western tradition, I'm less familiar with um, novels outside the Western tradition, but it, it, it really, really holds firm across across time and space in in my mind and, and that includes Oscar Wilde um the the picture of Dorian Gray is of course a highly imitative novel and novel all about um art and mimicry and and life imitating art and art imitating life uh but also in you know even in his like funny plays um you know so many of the the importance of being earnest for instance like everybody everybody like wants earnest and then wants you know earnest because other people want earnest and wants everyone to be earnest right it just it, it um it that you know that play is so fun and so silly and so witty but like in its in its silly way it reveals the imitative nature of desire too and i mean of course it's not a novel it's a play but i think i think you know great shakespeare does it it's not it's not even just just novels i it really extends to um, I, I would say to to plays and to to cinema to narrative arts more generally. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of the importance of being earnest, it's it's this critique on I guess this bourgeois Victorian kind of moral code mm -hmm. that Wilde tries to shatter. Not an attempt. I mean, some argue that he's a total amoralist, but when you read between the lines, you see he's trying to conceive of like a, a true form of morality that's not just um, not just putting on an appearance. And this is something, I mean, you touch on this throughout the novel, but also in some of the essays that you've published that, you know, a lot of the moralism that we see today that some people will call virtue signaling, um, it's this, this hollow kind of mimesis, you know, because there's no, I don't know, like it's, it's trying too hard to attain this ideal of morality of, um, I don't know, of, of political correctness, as we say. But, um, and it has very significant consequences for art, you know, because when morality becomes, we could say an idol in itself, then metaphysical beauty kind of falls by the wayside. So can you talk a little bit more about your your commentary on contemporary morality and how, I don't know, how Wilde kind of sheds light on this? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there was actually just a, another good piece on this recently, not by me, in, in The Atlantic. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's, it's starting to, I think, gain a little more traction. And for me, it, the, the place of morality in art has to be one of, from an observational perspective rather than a persuasive yeah. mm -hmm. perspective. Because when, when the goal is transparently instructive um, or worse to, you know, to, to virtue signal, to show, um, you know, how good you are, right? That comes out in 
the work itself. And and what that ultimately is 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 largely propaganda rather than art. I, I would argue. And you know, people forget that you can have propaganda for really good causes. Sure. That, that 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 there can be that there can be um you know positive that propaganda isn't like an inherently negative thing um but it's still propaganda and novels are just not in my mind the place for it the the purpose of a novel is to um to entertain and this isn't to say that political novels um can't be entertaining they can i and i've mm -hmm. used margaret atwood as a good example who i think is a really good example of this in the past who's uh, you know um novels often you know have the the end result of of seeming to um you know to, to have a, a pretty clear political perspective right and yet and that perspective is largely in line with mainstream progressive moralism but the novels are also beautiful and that's not that the the politics is not the the pure raison d'etre and she says this in her master class like in like the I haven't taken her master class but even just the ad for the master yeah. class which is like the number one rule is hold my attention and I think we forget this this in in novels there's this sense in contempt in the contemporary literary zeitgeist that they are that novels are supposed to be these self-serious um you know moralistic uh tools for for almost medicinal instruction and we like no wonder everybody wants to watch tv which is allowed to just be entertaining mm -hmm. and um is allowed to probe the kinds of um questions and and choices and um complexities of uh of humanity that that the great novels of the past and the great novels of the present are still are still looking for and i don't want to give the sense that you know all art right now sucks. I absolutely don't think that. I think there's marvelous wor work and marvelous novels being uh, being written. I love Elif Batuman. Um, I mean, I I I love I, I love some of the you know some of the the biggies who are who are still around. Jonathan Franzen, um, Donna Tartt, right? Right, Easton yeah. Ellis. Like, there's there's a lot of amazing novelists working right now. So it's not like this is like a past versus future thing um but there is i would say a bias toward a lot of the the progressive moralistic fiction in 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 general yeah it's a bias but i also think people are desensitized to the fact that this is not then it shouldn't be the norm but it's also mm -hmm. like it's not good art like i don't know i think of like the majority of the netflix original series that are out there a lot of them include the kind of you know virtue signaling du jour without any real substance without any really you know mm -hmm. um any substance in plot line or acting and people think that they're supposed to say like oh this is good because the message is good but the execution sucks so like the fact that we don't we don't recognize this issue of the quality the metaphysical dimension you know and it's i mean you say this in one of your other essays that like when politics becomes metaphysical then we have this materialist art to compensate yes. just yes. say it becomes it becomes hollow whereas yes. you know a true politician is supposed to be focused on the material needs of the people whereas art should have the metaphysical should should be tapping into something mysterious the deeper yes. dimensions of human nature right or yeah that's right yeah and then also i mean the whole the wildian thing that like true art 
is useless. Like it shouldn't, ha- it shouldn't be socially expedient. At least that shouldn't be the goal. Right? I mean, it's it, yeah, exactly. And I think that that part and parcel with this is is that sense of joy, though. There's, mm-hmm. it's hard to divorce this conversation from the material realities of, or or you know, lack thereof of of the professionalization of art and the idea of the professional um, writer and, and, you know, by which I mean kind of the MFA track through schools, the, the end of which is, you know, by and large teaching, right. You know, writing novels and short stories, but also the, the profession of teaching because almost no one actually can make a living off of novel writing alone. It's very, very unusual. Right. Um, but then, then the the hierarchy around and and judgment around snob, what I like to call snobbist yeah. industries, um, you know, publishing nonprofits. I myself worked before I became a consultant at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, so I'm really familiar with these sort of organizations. You you know them, right? Like they're the kind of places where someone needs to die for you to get a promotion yeah. you know you make like no money but but are, are effectively being paid in in prestige and the a lot of a lot of um the moralistic art seems tied to me to um you know the moralism around um the ability to make you know make make money off your art and the professionalization of of art which again really it it has often not benefited from that professionalization it's 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 really tricky because you want um equality of opportunity in the space but the reality and, and you need time to do these things so like like really the best way to become a novelist is to be born to a lot of a lot of generational yeah. wealth and 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 we don't want it to be limited to those you know to, to be limited in that way at all and it shouldn't but there's this tension because as soon as you bring you know that money that pressure into the equation particularly the sort where it's you know really am I going to be able to to feed my family and afford rent kind of thing you're almost there, there there's a there's an external pressure that is very very hard um hard pressed to coexist with a quite useless mentality and they're um you know I, I haven't totally even resolved this tension in my mind in my own like what would probably be called i, I think you call them someplace normy mm-hmm. normy progressive yeah. liberal politics which are my politics by the way yeah. like like i i i really struggle to you know reconcile that and and um and all of my desires for that in the material sphere with um, my my sense that that really um, the aristocratic model is often more conducive to um, to art. The less, of course, art and commerce have always been entwined, and it's not like a total purity thing. And you know, I, I certainly am not above commercial considerations, but there's commercial considerations and commercial considerations. Like thinking about a public and an audience is very different from feeling a pressure to contort 
what should be art into a specific way to to literally survive. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think there's this kind of anxiety to let beauty just be beautiful and useless without there being some kind of socially expedient end goal. You know, that's, you know, that's this, I mean, that's the, um, the residue of this puritanical mentality and, and, uh, you know, going to what you're saying about the snobs and uh, you have an interesting little chart in the, in this essay, also in the Substack <laughs> post, um, but, you know, with the snobbery, like, mm -hmm. ultimately you say this, that being a writer, like you have to have a certain level of privilege to write. And again, with this kind of moralistic anxiety that we have, we're very quick to, as we say, check our privilege at the door, to acknowledge if we're privileged and to try to do away with it. But, you know, you, you, this comes up a lot in the novel, like just because we check our privilege at the door, does that mean we're like free of all inequalities or free of- No, not in the slightest, yeah. And I mean, the right. characters <laughs> reveal that, but, but no, I mean, this is, this is something that I've thought a lot about too, like, you know, spending a lot of my time writing is yeah. that like, okay, it's, if I don't acknowledge that I have certain privileges, then I'm delusional, of course. But this idea of, okay, check it at the door and act like it's not a thing anymore. One, that's not possible, but two, I don't think it's socially responsible because like, if I have a privilege, if I'm in a position where I can write, where I can mm -hmm. think about these more abstract things, about these ideals, comment on society, I feel like I have a duty to use that privilege and offer that, those deeper thoughts, that deeper, um, you know, um, inquiry and share it with the world, share it through writing, you know, and I feel like when we're quick to just moralize, but like, no, I have to be totally equal. I have to absolve myself of my privilege. Like you miss out an opportunity to be of service to others. You know, it, it doesn't even in my mind have to be deep. Like I've, I've argued in the past for the benefits of sophistry, qua sophistry. Like there's, there are times and places for, um, you know, like the, the less serious too. And I mean, it go goes to the, the useless point. I think so much of great writing is just a pure love of language. And there's a sense of play there. It's almost childlike, the, the banter, the badinage, the, and this is very, very wildian, right? Like it, it is, it's a the the love of wit for wit's sake. It's it's a pleasure, but and it's a human pleasure. It's you know we're social animals, we're social creatures. Um, it there is great depth. Like maybe 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 it's not to say that that it's not deep, but that there's great depth to superficiality. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean ultimately, it, it also makes me think a lot about Kierkegaard because. Like this is one of his dilemmas that he's you know caught up with this existential angst, um, worrying about problems that like aren't there aren't they're not problems that people in the real world are thinking about every day, and he has the luxury to sit there and philosophize about them and like worry about them. But you can say that they're they're abstract, that they're superficial, but they're also deeply human. And the fact that he wrote all these works of philosophy exploring these questions, like that, is a service to the everyday person who has to you know work a, a regular nine to five job. Um, that's that's what I'm saying. It's like, there's a responsibility if you have that privilege to use it. And because someone's got to ask these questions, like somebody's got to make beautiful art and philosophy, you know, because if not- I then... also, but I, I quibble with the sense that that is not compatible with a regular nine to five job. And this is and, and this goes back to the that. snobbist, you know, the snobbist industry stuff, right? That I would almost argue that like, 
that a normal nine to five job is more conducive because you can split those things. Whereas the snobbist industry stuff, you know, bleeds in and, and, and gets in your head and you get that egoic tension. Yeah. Because I mean, for me, like I worked an actual job for eight years before jumping into writing full time. And I realized like, that's a privilege to have to have to work in the real world with actual people. Cause then your writing has like, you have a wealth of experience to draw on. Whereas if you only do writing then like, what are you saying? But I mean, but this is, I mean, you're doing living in both worlds, you know, like you're working a full-time job and you're writing, which I mean, I imagine it's easier said than done, but what is that like for you? Like, how do you manage that? As much as possible, I, I take breaks. So I took a, a leave of absence from my job this summer to, to write full-time. And I, since I've been back at my full-time job, I have not made a ton of progress on my novel, made a ton of progress over the summer when I was focused on it. So, you know, for me, it's more a streaky thing. Uh, I, I need deep focus for the novel. I can multitask on a a newsletter post. It's, it's much harder on something like a novel that just literally requires every brain cell I have. And even some that I don't sometimes, (laughs) but overall, I, I would say it just, it happens one day at a time and one choice at a time. And it's not, it's not always easy, but it's also that they're also more compatible than you might think. I've, I've often said, and I've even said this in presentations at my day job that my day job has made me a better novelist and being a novelist has made me better, not worse at my day job. So I mean, I've gotten, you've read, you've read my book. I got a lot of material from, from, you know, client work and, and working in the, both the museum world and the consulting industry was, I mean, my work experience was directly irrelevant and, and inspirational. And likewise, so much of, of consulting, even on the internal side, which I, which I do now is, is storytelling and telling you know, weaving a narrative for senior executives, for rank and file, for all sorts of different audiences, right? Yeah. No, I mean, and I can imagine how, like, it helps to make the the nine to five job a more meaningful, interesting experience, because then you see it as poetic in itself. You see it as, it becomes a work of art, you know? I do. And I've made deliberate choices to be in as psychologically interesting and environment and and problem solving situation at work as possible. So I do a lot of work around incentives, which <laughs> and motivations and uh, and also teaming and psychological safety and uh, it and that's by design, right? I, I've moved into some of these areas because of my novelistic pursuits and and vice versa because you know they they've been mutually beneficial. So do people at your job know, or have they read your novel? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and several, so, so I would say, yeah, basically everyone I work with on any sort of regular basis knows I actually, me and another author in India, when our books were coming out in 2021, were invited on like a big uh, call to like tell everybody about our books even. Oh, and, you know, yeah, no, my, my company, my direct boss, like everyone is very, very supportive and, um, I would absolutely say that 
benefits my my consulting friends and consulting world uh, the consulting world are much much more supportive of my novelistic pursuits than the literary world is of wow. consulting. Very interesting. <laughs> Which is not surprising, right? Yeah, and I mean, but the other side of it is, you know, you worked before that, you worked in museum world, and that plays a huge role in the plot of the novel. And I mean, I, I think it's really fascinating how you set a lot of these scenes in in rooms in a in a museum and exhibit spaces, and you you do a lot of play with specific works of art, and you even included the you know the images of them in the back, um, and just like have the characters playing off of the the position of, of these uh, these works of art. And you know, I mean, the most significant is on the cover is um, Narcissus, the Caravaggio one. Other other Narcissus. Um, paintings show up as well but you know the earlier on in the book there's this scene where you know there's uh, an exhibition then there's uh, I think it's a mirror that's on the opposite wall of the Narcissus painting and, yeah. and the viewers are invited to take selfies with him um, kind of modern rendering of Narcissus so uh, talk a little bit about that and like I guess the mimetic dimension of um, the Narcissus myth and, and our contemporary kind of selfie culture. Well, I should mention that I didn't learn about Girard and mimetic theory until after my novel was okay. published. Uh, I uh, basically what you can say is I, like many of the other novelists that Girard tracks, I independently, and this was part of the purpose of writing this novel, was to demonstrate that de desires imitative quality what what Gerard really gave me and what Luke Luke's book gave me was a vocabulary to talk about something that I could only previously discuss in direct novelistic terms as opposed to critical one so all of the language that I'm using I, I none of that I would have used even the day my novel <laughs> came came out that's that's a, a new lexicon for me relatively a couple of years now mm -hmm. wow. um so, sorry what was was the second part of the question i i no, i mean like the like drawing the parallel between the myth of narcissus and like oh the yeah the narcissus myth and the selfie culture sorry mm -hmm. yes uh so i i wasn't thinking about you know mimetic desire specifically with that mm -hmm. but i was absolutely thinking of the narcissus myth and selfie culture as as being deeply directly related I can't remember whether I quote this line in the novel but um Alberti had uh, you know claimed early on that that Narcissus was the father of painting and um you know selfies are the new modern form of portrait so there's a there's a direct line there in in terms of image capture uh, more explicitly both are related i think to the problem of immortality mm -hmm. and um you know and the desire for image capture is uh, in my mind related to a fear of death a pull away from death a um uh, you know it's it's love and death all 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 wrapped into one big big thing and you know the, this is really the the subject of of Vivian's extended talk in the novel first on you know more of the 
the love angle, but then then ultimately more on on the death side and that it narcissus actually does ultimately achieve it in hell there's a little pool where he gets to look at himself for all eternity um uh and you know similarly with like this is where i think a lot of our you know contemporary the dominance of, of selfies comes down to a desire to capture capture something that is fleeting and 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 ward off death which is ironic because so many people kill themselves now um accidentally in trying to get really extreme yeah selfies yeah um i i also wonder did you did you rely on christopher lash at all while writing this no, I haven't. I haven't mm. heard of him. No, really, culture of narcissism. I, yeah, I haven't heard of it. I'm probably. I need to look it up. Clearly, yeah, if you read it, it's gonna blow your mind because it's. <laughs> oh my god! That's funny that you. I'm writing it down right now. Lash before writing this because it's like then it's kind of prophetic. Um, no, I mean so Christopher Lash. I mean he's like, he's he was like writing I guess in the 60s and 70s and has kind of reemerged in popularity after the Trump presidency. But mm. his whole thing is that contemporary narcissism is not born of like excessive love of self but a lack of a lack of a self a lack of personality you could say um so we try to fill that void through you know self-projection self-indulgence um and it, i don't know like it makes me think with the selfie thing there's a lot of moralizing around selfies like a lot of us are like oh you know go touch grass live in reality stop taking pictures of yourself because it's it's selfish and it's like okay, re being reactionary against the selfie is not, it's not an escape. I mean, and it bringing Gerard into the picture, like you can escape mimesis by claiming to be detached. Like it's, it starts from recognizing that I do have a desire to imitate, that I'm in the, like attempting to be original, to be unique is not what makes you unique. It's like recognizing that there's something, there's an ideal that I should be pursuing, that I should be trying to imitate. And it's, preferably a superior one to whatever you know everyone else is doing but I don't know haven't you noticed though that the moral backlash has gradually eroded like when selfies first started emerging it was seen as very much something that like blonde barbie types which is a completely unfair stereotype but that was what I'm saying what the stereotype was that this was something that that sort of person did and that over time selfies have gotten more and more mainstream and um acceptable especially when they are undercut or couched with an appropriate level of self-awareness or right. irony like it's okay if you post a selfie as long as you know that it's cringe to post a selfie yeah but is irony an escape from from mimesis is irony anti-mimetic oh that's a good question. Because like right now, irony is becoming a meme in itself. Like now it's irony yeah. is cringe. And so like, I don't know. But this, this it goes to the whole ebb and flow. I, I don't think that irony is inherently anti-memetic at all. Yeah. Because irony, like like everything else, like the, the flux we get from naturalism to artifice, um, which you can see in like, quiet luxury loud luxury quiet luxury loud luxury it is a constant 
tone set and flow down of you know from basically the socially um elite mm. or the high end toward toward the low end and you know it goes in a cycle because what what ultimately everyone is trying to do is differentiate and that's why that's why fashion goes in cycles that's why and and like it comes back in predictable numbers of years i don't think it's just nostalgia nostalgia obviously i i have lots of thoughts on nostalgia too and it's a very powerful force but nostalgia is i think you know it's related to your past desires right and and that ebb and flow it's really hard to untangle it i would argue from the the social the, the mimetic social chain that is deeply tied to um class not just in not just in a socioeconomic sense but not just in a socioeconomic sense but but really prestige of of any type which can social prestige basically whether or not that is you know economically based or or based on the sheer number of eyeballs looking at you or or or, or whatever it whatever it is that the, the influence Mm. the trickle down of, of influence and as soon as things trickle down too far you know at the top there's a new there's a new mechanism for for differentiation uh do you think it's safe to say that like wild is an example of how irony is not escape an escape or that it's not anti-memetic because like that was his whole thing up until everything crashed and burned in his life i mean and then from there like he had to kind of start again and like i don't know because I see how a lot of people are riding this kind of irony wave and that it's it's definitely interesting it, it does bring something new to the table but it's not enough in itself to like to lead to some kind of liberation or some kind of transcendence I mean there is sentimentalism though no absolutely right like like the, but that's that's where it, again I think that a lot of this the irony as a trend separate from irony just you know, qua irony in a, in a, you know, contextual work of art or whatever, um, is those are two different things. And I think this is maybe, maybe wild is a good example of this because, you know, he, he is using the latter a lot. And I'm not, I mean, he's, he is really often, he he's more critiquing, you know, uptight Victorian morals than, than irony, but you can, you can use irony to critique even irony. So, you know, this gets, yeah. this gets to my obsession with recursion and why it was more, yeah. more re recursion, you know, and the concept of recursion, the mimesis of mimesis of mimesis of mimesis is the what captured my, um, uh, my, my lexical attention uh, in the absence of, of Girard's better, you know, it, more universal, I guess, or more recognized, um, more recognized uh, verbiage before you know before I before I heard of it and why why the word recursion drew me so because it it seemed to encapsulate both um, Gerard's concept of mimesis and the mimesis of that mimesis though you know Gerard is really is really doing both with mimesis and uh, you know ultimately he does in in deceit desire in the novel go through you know the cycles pushed to their their extremity and um you know what i what i describe as as interpersonal recursion in in the portrait of amir is 
uh, all but identical with with Girard's mimetic theory. Yeah, and then I mean, other than mimesis, the other the main theme that you see in the plot of the novel is it's the role of guilt. Because without giving too much away, you know, main characters get into some uh, some funny <laughs> stuff, and yeah. you know, the guilt that they feel really uh, takes over. And again, like reading some of your other essays, you see how like this is kind of a commentary on how guilt drives a lot of, again, like the moralism, the kind of contemporary mentality that we have and how it's it's papered over with, again, the talk about checking our privilege at the door and, you know, wanting to correct all these quote unquote problematic words, ideas, whatever. But uh, can you can you say a little bit about how you explore this this concept of guilt and how it pertains to the culture today? Yeah, I. I... I wasn't so much thinking about guilt in a vacuum as I was about the dichotomy between guilty seeming innocence and innocent seeming guilt. Mm-hmm. And the so so for me, the exploration of guilt was certainly there's a, there's a moral element to it for sure, but I was admittedly more interested in the psychological uh or almost i mean more like purely intellectual almost problem of whether whether what what wins out appearance or reality and specific not just appearance or reality but you know but but when those things are in in direct conflict which conflict is which conflict we choose and the there's a relationship there with, you know, moralism for sure. And I, it's, it's open. I think it's an open-ended question and I hope it was left open-ended in the novel, you know, which one of these things is better or worse. Is there a better or worse? Like, I I don't know the answer to these questions. That's part of the reason that I, I wrote the book to, to explore them and see what, what other people thought about that. What do you think? I mean, after reading it, do you, I don't think it gives away anything about, the plot to say, you know, whether you, um, you know, whether you would choose innocent seeming guilt or guilty seeming innocence. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how like the internal monologues of the characters like attempt to justify the behavior, but also throw the guilt around. And I mean, ultimately, I was just rooting for them to come clean and just be like, okay, you screwed up, admit it. Yes, it will suck. It's uncomfortable. And but then you can move on and you won't feel like internally you know destroyed over this but i don't know i mean it's um i feel like i haven't read many novels where this this particular kind of conflict this kind of transgression is is like explored in so much depth so it's i don't know it was it was very interesting for me to oh i'm so glad have you read crime and punishment no i'm putting off all those giant books till like when i get old i have nothing if you enjoyed that aspect of it i might might recommend crime and punishment it you know it, in greater detail explores um the you know one 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 side of the yeah of that equation yeah okay so i'm gonna have to try to push it up read it earlier <laughs> Um, all right, so I have one more question for you, kind sure. of related. So, given that you you worked at the Met, yeah, what do you think is what's the best exhibit or what's the best collection? Um, well, I mean, I personally love the Greco-Roman galleries. I just think they're so 
grand and you know you have the urns you have the the marble it's so beautifully put together but in terms of just um you know just one piece and this features in in my book i have to give it to canova's um perseus with the head of medusa it's it's just iconic and um and the the play i'm such a uh, a sucker for sculptures of medusa and this one's you know particularly particularly good and particularly well displayed in the met in the middle of petri court it's like a a lamp post in in the museum and uh it's just it's just my favorite so but were the, was the Caravaggio collection there when you were no 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 they ne- no no that 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 exhibit was an exhibit from my my the the museum of my mind Stephen this is not an exhibit that's happened but, but they um, do they are there today there's like a couple that they there add. are but 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 the narcissus the is narcissus is, not. is is not there um Bernini's Medusa is also not there the two that are at the Met are the Jerome um of of Pygmalion and uh, Perseus with the head of Medusa, Canova's Perseus with the head of Medusa. All the others would have been, you know, on loan. The Poussin, Poussin's Narcissus is in the Louvre, um, so uh, they're 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 all over. This would have been a you know, special jewel day. box exhibition. I would love to put it on someday. By the way, <laughs> so of course you can present the book there, do a reading. Yeah, and well, <laughs> complete with mirror. I mean, the whole yes. thing. I the, this I is the mirror idea. I've never seen that. Well, I, I haven't either, but it just it makes so much sense to me. Yeah, I think that I I actually, and this is I'm I'm going to admit this, I've never seen Caravaggio's Narcissus wow. in person. Um I've I, I did get um the the critic Lauren Euler, who um I did my my launch event with, she she went to see it and kindly, kindly sent me a picture of the original. <laughs> but no, I've never I've never been out to see it um i i obviously need to yes hopefully soon you can take a selfie with it and post it my new book's more about um Bruegel though so i'm okay. i'm looking to uh, get up to um uh belgium and first okay do we have an idea when we can expect that one you know books take a really long time to produce Maybe. i don't even have a, a first a complete first draft yet it's hard to know um i mean I think I wrote I wrote recently on Instagram that I'm hoping by like next Black Friday I'm hawking a new novel, but that doesn't mean that it would be out yet. I mean, it just it takes um, you know, even when it goes as fast as possible, like a year is the absolute shortest time from sale to publication for novels. Like eighteen to twenty four months is often much much more likely. So it'll probably be a while, but uh, but I I am like pretty close to finishing drafting. It's just about finding that that dedicated time i'm hoping to make some over the holidays i know my agent would like me to finish it <laughs> yeah well until then people can pick up portrait of a mirror and remind us uh your Substack, what it's called yes it's um it's quite useless and it's just at zhukovsky.substack.com awesome and people can follow you what's your handles um it's at zhukovsky on instagram i don't really do Twitter anymore at all. I have okay. said goodbye. And 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 Substack, those are those are really the ones I do. Awesome. Well, Natasha, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Stephen.